live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus soon. U.S. stocks fall further despite soothing noises from global policymakers. Swiftly and forcefully, the OECD calling for action to tackle the economic cost of the coronavirus. And Twitter's new troll, activist investor Elliott Management tackling CEO Jack Dorsey. It's Monday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Monday. It's a new week. It's also a new month, of course. What's not new is the sheer level of volatility that we're seeing once again in global markets. I'll give you a look at what we're seeing for U.S. futures at this moment. We are in the red. We were much higher earlier tracking gains in Europe and Asia, but Europe also lost steam. All the chatter this weekend focused on government, on central bank support, coordinated or otherwise, helped along, of course, by the statement that we got late on on Friday from the Federal Reserve saying that they stand ready to act. And yet, as I mentioned, we've lost ground here. Pre-market, also in Europe, despite more soothing noises as well overnight and this morning from policymakers around the world. Nothing guaranteed at this stage, and people are simply nervous. Let me give you the list. We've had the Bank of England today, Italy, announcing a $4 billion aid package to the Bank of Japan governor, also hinting about further stimulus here too. Australia also expected to lower rates tomorrow as well. It did help sentiment in Asia. Stocks closing solidly higher. The Shanghai Composite rallied over 3%. That despite Friday's awful Chinese factory data. The index survey there falling to its lowest levels on record for the month of February. No surprise there, I have to say. China also announced a bailout for the debt-ridden conglomerate HNA Group, which has been badly weakened by the coronavirus. You have to expect more help along those lines going forward. The big questions, of course, for today, big picture. Have we seen the lows in stocks, not just in the United States, but around the world? There's plenty of bad news now in the price. And with U.S. bond yields falling below 1.1% for the first time ever, will the Federal Reserve feel pressure to cut? And will lower rates at this stage even help? Let's get to the drivers. I want to bring you up to speed with the latest on the coronavirus outbreak. The OECD, as I mentioned, saying is coronavirus is the biggest threat to the economy since the financial crisis. Their worst case scenario here sees global growth slowing to just one and a half percent in 2020. In the meantime, the United States has confirmed a second coronavirus death as the virus spreads. Florida, New York, Rhode Island have all reported their first cases. In the EU, they've raised their threat level from moderate to high as the number of cases in Italy jumped 50% in a single day over the weekend. In Paris, the Louvre Museum in Paris is closed for a second day. And in South Korea, Seoul City government is calling for homicide charges against the founder of the SEC, linked to the worst outbreak in the country. In the meantime, in Japan, the Cherry Blossom Festival has been cancelled. Just one of the bans that we're seeing on big gatherings and travel restrictions around the world. John Defteris joins us now to tie all the threads here. John, we're seeing a widening spread of this outbreak around the world. It's been the same story for many days here, but the OECD now stepping up and saying whether it's central banks, whether it's governments, more policy support and action here is needed, clearly. 
Uh, clearly, that is the case, Julia. In fact, I thought it was interesting is that uh, always a danger when you're 10 years into the economic cycle uh, that you don't have anything else left in the toolbox. So what do I mean by that? Uh, the U.S. has uh, run up a very big budget deficit. Uh, it has had this uh, debt rising at the same time. Growth is the slowest in three years, and now the U.S. Federal Reserve is going to come in and cut interest rates. Uh, I think it's already priced into the market. We heard from the Bank of Japan, which led to that market rally in Asia, uh, and that was quickly wiped out in Europe when we saw that OECD report. Best case scenario, two. You might as well just call it a recession. Worst case scenario, 1.5%. If I look at that report, Julia, I would suggest the biggest challenge is they're still factoring growth of China at 5% in 2020. That looks a little bit ambitious. I saw Goldman Sachs suggest that we could avoid a recession in the United States this year going into the election cycle, but that we may bottom out at 0% in the second quarter. Extraordinary for me, Julia, is that when I spoke to the IMF managing director, she talked about a V-shaped recovery just two weeks ago. Now they're talking about a U-shaped recovery. I think that is factoring a lot of great things just to come in together and in alignment. And you talked about all the different central banks talking. Where's this G20 or G7 coordination that we've been used to over the years that's not coming into play right now? John, you and I were talking about this in Davos at the back end of January, yes. saying, does the G20 need to be coming together to be talking about this? So, yes, better late than never. But come on, guys, get coordinated. You raise such great points there. The Chinese GDP, nominal GDP, a fifth of, of the world's growth here, 40 percent of the growth that we see, the acceleration that we see in growth here. Some understanding that things have to be revised lower, I think, makes sense. The other big question is, do rate cuts at this stage, given rates are already so low around the world, even help, particularly in the short term? It's surely about governments here stepping up and doing more, even if it's just identifying the number of cases out there. I, I think you make a fantastic point, because I think this crisis will end when we see the cases stop rising. Uh, right. And then we have to have the second largest economy in the world, China, uh, start recovering because that uh, PMI index that came out of China was the worst, as you suggested in your lead in since 2004. How bad was it? Break even's 50. This came in at just above 40. So it is terrible. Uh, I've been traveling. I was in Saudi Arabia last week on my way to London. The mood in airports, the consumer spending and sentiment is terrible. Uh, and you had a case where the Sarah Week, which is a very large oil and gas conference taking place next week in Houston, has been canceled. That follows the ITB, the big travel show in Berlin that's been shelved, the Geneva Motor Show. We heard out of Saudi Arabia, the big construction show, where we think uh, this is a big deal uh, with oil prices where they are today. Is the construction sector going to hold up? The big five in Jeddah has been canceled, Julia. So these things are not incidental. If you tie them all together, how do you see business confidence returning? How do you see consumer confidence? Then we have to think about Italy and all those cases right now uh, striking at the core of Europe. When does Germany, France, even the UK across the channel slow down in a big way? The PMI, by the way, in the UK wasn't very strong either. Yeah. John, there's so much in there and we'll come back later on in the show and, and discuss this with our viewers as well. What's in the price here? How do you quantify the risks that we're talking about? John Defterius, great to have you with us. Thank you so much Thanks. for that. Mm -hmm. All right, I want to head to South Korea now, where the authorities are pioneering a unique way of testing for the coronavirus, exactly to the point John and I were discussing there. Ivan Watson has this report. South Korea has more coronavirus cases than any other country in the world outside of mainland China. But the authorities have come up with an innovative way of 
tackling the challenge. This is drive-through coronavirus testing. It's a service that this city, Goyang, outside of Seoul, is offering for free to anybody who comes in here. You drive in with your car and you go through a series of stations to get the coronavirus test. Now, the number of cases in this country have surged. In just two weeks, the count of coronavirus diagnoses has gone up from 31 to more than 4,200. Testing is a key way to try to keep control of the disease. And South Korea has tested more than 100,000 people thus far. The authorities say the advantage of this is it speeds up the testing process and, crucially, it limits the exposures of potential carriers to the brave nurses and doctors who are on the front lines of this public health crisis. At no time does someone coming in to get tested, at no time do they get out of their vehicle. So there's no risk of them infecting a hospital or a clinic and other potentially vulnerable patients who may be there. And they never have to wait in a waiting room with other patients. They're not going to potentially spread the virus to other patients. Each person gets their temperature checked. They fill out a form. And one of the key questions is, have you been to the city of Daegu? That's the southern city where more than 70% of all the coronavirus cases in the entire country originate from. It's had a real explosion of coronavirus, and that would put you in a risk category. If you fall into that, if you have symptoms, then you come to this final station where the nurses use swabs to take samples from your nostrils, from your throat. That is then sent to a lab, and within two to three days, you'll get your results. The mayor of the city says he was inspired by the drive-throughs at Starbucks and McDonald's to come up with this idea. A doctor that I've spoken to at the Coronavirus Crisis Center in Daegu says this model could be a help for some countries that are just now beginning to tackle the epidemic of coronavirus. Ivan Watson, CNN, Goyang, South Korea. Let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we're following around the world. Several countries are on high alert following North Korea's latest launch. The South Korean military says the North fired two short-range projectiles into the sea between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. Tokyo says there's been no reported damage. South Korea says the launch is likely part of military drills. Philippines, a former security guard is in custody after about 30 people were held hostage at a shopping mall. The gunman claimed his company was rife with corruption and demanded four executives resign. Before the hostages were released, six directors actually did resign and apologize. The president of Israel has blasted the country's election campaign as awful and grubby, quote. Ruben Rivlin's comments come as the Israel goes to the polls for the third time in less than a year. They're choosing between Benjamin Netanyahu and his main rival, Benny Gantz. Elliot Gotkin joins us now from a polling station in Jerusalem. Take three, here we go again, Elliot. Are we any more likely this time around to break the political deadlock? It doesn't seem that way, uh, Julia. Certainly the opinion polls are suggesting that the, with this political deadlock will continue. I should say there are just under six hours to go until polling stations 
like the one you can see behind me here in Jerusalem, close. After that, we'll get the first exit polls, which will give us a, an indication perhaps of where things are heading, although they have been proved wrong in the past. And then the actual results will trickle through so that by sunrise tomorrow in Israel, we should get a pretty good idea of whether those opinion polls are right and whether that political deadlock uh, will, uh, will continue. Of course, uh, one actual figure that we have had so far today is from the Israeli Central Elections uh, Committee talking about turnout. Turnout at noon Israel time, that's about four hours ago, was at a 20-year high. Now, uh, we don't know what that means definitively because overall turnout may not have grown that much, but what it could indicate is that people fed up with having these incessant elections are coming out in greater numbers in order to try to break the impasse that we've seen and to put an end to what President Reuven Rivlin described as this, uh, this never-ending instability. So what happens then, to, to your point, even if we've seen this spike in attendance, we're not sure what that's going to mean in terms of where those votes actually end up. But if we do end up in a situation once again where we still can't form some kind of coalition government, what next? And specifically here for, for Benjamin Netanyahu, because given the charges that he faces, it's complicated for him very swiftly anyway. Well, Julia, I should say that, you know, you've heard of the Avengers Infinity War. We could be just in the beginnings of, of Israel's infinity elections because there's nothing legal uh, or in the, in the legal code here to prevent Israel going to fourth elections. They've already penciled in September, then fifth, sixth, seventh elections and beyond. And as you say, against that uh, backdrop, Prime Minister Netanyahu is due in court on corruption charges in just a couple of weeks' time. Really quite amazing to think that that's likely to happen. Of course, he would much prefer to be Israel's Prime Minister still when he goes into court to face those charges. But of course, at the same time as well, without a fully functioning government, uh, they are unable to pass a new budget. Uh, they are unable to, uh, it's difficult to finance new infrastructure or social programs. And according to the Israel Manufacturers, uh, Manufacturers Association, uh, these three elections so far have cost, including the actual cost of election and the cost of overtime and other things, it is a public holiday every time there's an election, has come something like two billion dollars. That's about half a percent of Israel's GDP. And the accountant general here in Israel is saying that if this uh, situation is not resolved soon, then we will really be seeing a real impact on Israel's economy. Julia? Wow. Just the wrong time as well, given uh, the broader backdrop here. The infinity election. Elliot, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for that. And we'll watch for the results. All right, let's move on. The U.S. Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg has dropped out of the campaign. The announcement comes a day after he finished fourth in the South Carolina primary and two days before Super Tuesday. We will have much more analysis on this later on in the show. For now, though, we're going to take a break. So we're coming up here on First Move, a possible election year shakeup at Twitter. Why CEO Jack Dorsey could be pushed out, plus... Democratic hopefuls are gearing up for Super Tuesday. Why tomorrow could put an end to some of their campaigns. It's hotting up. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to the show. Some sad news to bring you now. The death of American executive Jack Welsh at the age of 84. This according to CNBC, who spoke to his wife. From 1981 until his retirement in 2001, he was the chairman and CEO of General Electric at a time when the conglomerate saw unprecedented growth and financial success. A legend, certainly, in the business world. We'll have more for you on this when we get it.
for now, uh, let me give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of US markets or a pre-market. And uh, I tell you what, the open today is anyone's guess because having told you that uh, futures were down, we are now higher by almost 1% from the Nasdaq and there's plenty of time till the open yet. So uh, we shall see. But 10 minutes to the open, we are higher for US futures. Assurances from all over the world, from central banks, the Bank of England, Australia expected to cut rates, the Federal Reserve statement, of course, on Friday. That despite seeing a terrible factory activity data from China on Friday to the worst levels on record. There's plenty to discuss. Brian Levitt joins me now. He's the global market strategist at Invesco. Great to have you with us. Great to be here. Lots of volatility. Lots I think of volatility. that's the one thing we can guarantee at this stage. Right. Talk me through what you think as far as stimulus, whether it's central bank action or monetary stimulus perhaps and, and fiscal stimulus from governments. Right. So first and foremost, we should expect volatility when there's economic uncertainty. Yes. So that is where we are. And this there will be plenty of economic uncertainty. I, I suspect central bankers stand ready to provide support to the economy. The bigger question is whether an interest rate decline is actually going to stimulate economic yes. activity. I think you'll see a wave of refinancing. I'm probably there, right? Rates are so low. Uh, but the problem is people need to have a little bit more optimism that they could go out in public. And, and so you'll see some hit to consumer spending. It's really more around what the medical community can do to get out ahead of this and whether the Federal Reserve stands ready to provide liquidity support to businesses that may need it rather than whether a decline in interest rates can can really help to reinvigorate economic activity. Yeah, it's far more about the message that it sends, that they're there and ready to support economic Absolutely. activity versus Absolutely. actually the benefit of lower rates at this Absolutely. stage. Do you think the Federal Reserve does cut rates, though, at their, their March 18th meeting? Because I believe we've got half a percentage point worth of, of cuts now priced. It's, we go back into this situation where central banks almost get forced by markets to take action simply because of the pricing. Well, that's here. how it goes, right? And that's the old James Carville line about wanting to come back in life as the bond market so he can bully everyone. And, and if you look at where the 10-year Treasury rate is, it's significantly below the Fed funds right now. I mean, significantly below. Yes. And, and so, fortunately, the two-year is not, but I suspect the Federal Reserve will respond. The, the good news is the yield curve is not inverted and the dollar's been relatively stable in here. So that's the good news from the Federal Reserve's perspective. But you really have to start to watch corporate credit spreads. and Because um, this is borrowing costs borrowing then for costs. corporates. And, and the more they creep up, the Federal Reserve will try to counteract that. It really becomes down to, again, more about the medical community getting out ahead of this and people feeling comfortable to get back to activity. I mean, I, I don't want to dip into your medical knowledge here, but we were talking earlier on the show about simply the need to identify the number of cases and the, yes. the lags with that fueling the degree of uncertainty here, I think, for, for everybody at this stage. Do you think we are being a little bit alarmist when we see the likes of Goldman Sachs saying a full percentage point of cuts, the OECD saying we all need to step up and take action versus what's already priced into things like stock markets? And there's now a lot of weakness for, for this year globally priced in already. Yeah, I mean, Have it's incredible. I don't know if we've seen the lows, but it's incredible when you look at the 10-year rate where it is. If you look at the copper-gold ratio, it is now as low as it was during the 2008 financial crisis. So in essence, you're getting to a point where investors are saying that something is going to happen where, where something breaks and this permeates throughout the global financial system. The way I see it is the banks are better capitalized than they've been. There's no inflation. The Fed stands ready to respond. So I don't think that this is you know, a, a great recession looming and some 
some of the indicators are starting to get there. VIX at, at you know near all-time highs. These things usually represent buying opportunities because of the fact that this is this will likely continue to spread, and because people are asymptomatic for a while, it may take some time, and that could keep um, some pressure on asset prices. Look, I, I'm going to sound a little bit of a more optimistic note. No, and we I think know this is important. We, we know we ultimately get beyond this, and we've seen it with SARS and MERS and H1N1, and so you have these drawdowns, and then you you ultimately get beyond this. Unfortunately, it's going to take a little bit of time, and the longer economic uncertainty persists, the, the more likely markets will be volatile. But don't panic. I no, 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 line. don't panic. Yeah. I mean, the one thing we know Strong from message. history is that you know, the, we, things we did come a, back. Things come back. Brian, great to have you with us. Thank Brian you. Levitt there, Global Market Strategist at Invesco. I want to attend back now to our breaking news this morning and the death of American executive Jack Welsh at the age of 84. Matt Egan joins us now on this story. Matt, I called him a, a legend of the business world earlier. Two titles actually come to mind for me. Um, manager of the century and a neutron Jack. He wasn't afraid to make cuts over the years where required. A legend. I'll say it again. That's right. You know, he really was a larger-than-life figure. He reshaped not just General Electric, but corporate America and management ideas um, really kind of broadly. Uh, he is known for really having a laser focus while he was leading General Electric, and he helped turn it into um, not just the United States' most valuable country, but uh, company, but the world's most valuable company at one point. Now, uh, Welsh actually started his career as a chemical engineer in 1960 at GE, and he quickly rose up the ranks. By 1981, he became the youngest CEO in GE history, and he um, really was known for having very reliable shareholder returns, consistently uh, beating expectations on the earnings front. And um, as you mentioned, he could be quite ruthless on the cost-cutting front. He oversaw some very dramatic cost-cutting and layoff at GE in an effort, again, to um, to really generate those shareholder returns. He stepped down in September of 2001, uh, just before 9-11. He turned the company over to uh, Jeff Immel. Now, just in the last few minutes, I did receive an email uh, from GE where they are confirming um, Jeff Welsh's death. And they also put out a statement from uh, the current CEO, Larry Culp. And Larry, Larry said today is a sad day for the entire GE family. He said Jack was larger than life and the heart of GE for half a century. He reshaped the face of our company and the business world. Um, certainly a, a powerful figure, Julia. Absolutely. And I, I think for me, the management style that was adopted by people that worked at GE and went on to other companies, the vitality curve, where are you on the vitality curve as a, as a performance manager and what do you achieve for your company? He's, he'll be remembered for many things, I think, in addition, as you said, his larger than life personality. He will. He will. And, and, you know, as we mentioned, he really did reshape GE, which was um, just a, a very industrial focused company. And, and he diversified it for better or worse. Um, he was uh, in charge when they went out and acquired uh, RCA, which uh, owned NBC Universal. So he turned this manufacturing giant known for light bulbs and jet engines into a media conglomerate. Um, now, GE has, of course, since uh, spun off the NBC Universal business to Comcast. Um, but he also pushed GE into financial services, 
which of course became a problem during the financial crisis in 2008. Yeah, absolutely. The conglomerate um, model, very challenged, but $12 billion to $410 billion, the market cap of GE in his lifetime. Wow. Matt Egan, thank you for joining us on that. We're counting down to the market open. Volatility, the name of the game once again. We're expecting a stronger open, but hey, watch this space. We're back in two. Stay with First Move. move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell this Monday morning. We are beginning the new week and the new month here with gains, it seems, despite some incredible volatility. I think we've got a thousand point range. I was just calculating on the Dow since uh, last night. It does follow the worst week for stocks, of course, since the financial crisis too. A series of statements coming from central bankers around the world, the Japanese, the UK, the US central banks, all helping lend support here with statements assuring investors that they stand ready to act if necessary. Tech stocks are the outperformers as well. I'm just having a look at that. Yes, up more than 1% right now for the Nasdaq. That follows the 10% drop that we saw last week, of course. The Dow and the S&P falling 12%. I want to give you a look at what we're seeing in terms of the energy markets as well. We're seeing a bit of a bounce in oil after suffering at its worst week since 2011. We have that OPEC meeting on Thursday, of course, to discuss extending the production cut agreement that expires later this month. So there's clearly a lot going on. Claire Sebastian joins us now. Claire, in addition to the soothing words from central bankers around the world, the Italian government adding $4 billion worth of stimulus here for, for companies and consumers, and the OECD saying more needs to happen and sooner rather than later. Yeah, Julia, I think uh, it's interesting. Clearly, the, the, the coordinated central bank action has, has sort of eased some pressure on the markets. And I think it's interesting to look at those statements. They were very similar in many ways. Not only did they come out at the same time, but they all use similar wording, monitoring developments, act as appropriate, act as needed. So that certainly did help the banks, although it was a very volatile pre-market session, as you point out. But but there is still a question about, is that enough? Are lower rates going to prompt people to, to book a trip or to attend an event? Is it going to help confidence? And I think that's where governments coming are coming in. The OECD, are of course, urging governments to, to to do more, to really think about how they're going to support the industries affected, support their healthcare system. So I think uh, that is something that, that certainly the, the governments are, are going to be taking notice of. And you point out Italy uh, as well today. But if you look at the Dow, most of the stocks there are, are now in the green. I think there's also some value hunting going on uh, at the moment. Several tech analysts out this morning saying, look, all of this doesn't change the fact that these big cap tech stocks, the likes of Apple, Amazon, Netflix, are all sort of on the right side of history here. It doesn't change the fact that 5G will be important, e-commerce will be important, streaming will continue to be a big deal. So, so there are some people who are looking at this and thinking, look, these are continuing to be very strong market leaders and now might be a time to get in and, and get some value here. Mm, it's going to be another interesting session, something tells me, Claire Sebastian. Great to have you with us. Thank you for that. Right, shares in HA, one of China's biggest conglomerates, closed up over 3% in the session today. The government has stepped in to run the company. It was already battling to reduce a massive debt pile even before the coronavirus outbreak. Matters worse. 
Companies in China, though, continue to face a battle returning to normal after all the precautions taken because of the coronavirus outbreak. Greg Gillian is the chairman of the American Chamber of Commerce in China and joins us now. Greg, great to have you with us. Can you just start by telling us what proportion of the, the companies that you talk to and represent are still operating with some form of, of restriction to their activity and output at this moment? Julia, the answer is almost everyone because we're working on um, sort of remedial measures to uh, return to work and increase productivity. 94% of uh, our member companies that responded to a recent survey said they are working in large part uh, from home or remotely where they can. Of course, that's not true for manufacturing entities that need to have people uh, on the ground in their factories. But anybody who can work remotely overwhelmingly is able to quantify the impact that this is going to have on revenues, even if we just stagger it, if we say that actually the, the restrictions that we've seen and the challenges are in place until April, and perhaps even if we extend it even further, if we say by the summer, by August, are they able in some way to get a gauge of just what the damage will be? able is a, is a good question, but we're all trying. And so um, many of our members, I think it's around 43%, expect that uh, revenues will be impacted if the situation lasts through the end of April. Uh, if it goes through the end of August, then their uh, projected impact would be much larger. And so you know, we're working along a couple different scenarios. Although many of our members that responded to the survey think that we should be back to work in a very vigorous way by the end of March. Um, there's only a smaller number, which would be 12% in this case, that uh, was anticipating something more severe. You know, it's all happened incredibly quickly, and, and the assumption that we make from outside of China is that targeted support, stimulus, credit, whatever is required, will be pushed through to, to companies there. What are they saying about the measures in place to perhaps ease some of the financial conditions for, for companies? And are you having conversations with those that say if, if this carries on, we might not survive it? A liquidity crunch. Well, so AmCham China has been extremely active with our member companies and then taking everything they tell us and relating it to both U.S. government and to the China government. Uh, we've had a great deal of meetings, uh, some in person, where I've gone to uh, the ministries or I've gone to the U.S. embassy. Uh, I, in the last week, I've interacted with Ambassador Terry Branstad, uh, with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Vice Minister Zhong Zeguang, uh, Vice Minister of Commerce, uh, Wang Shouwen, etc. I could read you a long list of ministries that we engage with on a daily basis. So what we're doing is we're taking all this the needs and the issues and proposed solutions of our member companies. And then we're in very close proximity to government to work through these things with them. Naturally, many companies are looking maybe for uh, alleviation of uh, tax and some other measures that will help them get through this difficult time. Greg, I just want to ask you a question about the level of pollution there. For, for anyone who's been to Beijing, we've seen it in, in various degrees of mist and, and smog. 
depending on the time of year in particular, but we've also been on social media seeing satellite images of far cleaner airspace, it seems. Is it far cleaner there as a result of the suppression of a factory activity? It has definitely dropped off. Uh, sparkling, no, because we've all, many of us, have been self-quarantined. That would include my wife and our children uh, at home. And uh, there's been periods where it's been difficult to go outside to stretch our legs and such because of the pollution. But uh, of late, it has certainly uh, gotten much lower, which is a nice thing. Because if you have to limit your activities, at least you can still get outside, get a breath of air, see a little sunshine. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Greg. It's uh, great to chat to you and uh, best wishes to your wife and children as well. The chairman there of the American Chamber of Commerce in China. All right, we're going to take a quick break here on First Move. But when we come back, Pete Buttigieg quitting his White House race just ahead of Super Tuesday. What his exit, though, means for the remaining contenders? Analysis straight ahead. First move, Democrat Pete Buttigieg has given up his campaign to win the party's presidential nomination. I will no longer seek to be the 2020 Democratic nominee for president, but I will do everything in my power to ensure that we have a new Democratic president come January. His announcement came a day after former Vice President Joe Biden won the South Carolina primary. Buttigieg finished fourth in the state after having a hard time winning support among black voters. Billionaire Mike Bloomberg did not contest the first four nominating states, including South Carolina. The former New York City mayor has focused on Super Tuesday, the biggest day of the Democratic presidential race, when 14 states hold primary. Super Tuesday, of course, is tomorrow. Bradley Tusk joins us now. He's the founder and CEO of Tusk Ventures and also an informal advisor to the Bloomberg campaign. Great to have you with Thank us. You for me. You've been busy? I have. <laughs> we'll come back to, uh, yeah. to uh, Mr. Bloomberg. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Sure. Is Joe Biden back? Because I look at Super Tuesday, I look at California in particular. Yeah. And he could get thwacked there yeah, by Bernie I mean, Sanders. The answer, which is an unsatisfying one for you, but is maybe, right? So if there is a bump from South Carolina, clearly that would help him a lot. Um, but, for example, if take California as, as, as a good example. Early voting's been going on for weeks, in which case in all of those elections, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, Biden wasn't doing particularly well at all. So, you know, hopefully for his sake, there is a bump uh, in California. And then, look, states like Texas, North Carolina, some of the more moderate states, he really needs to do pretty well to be within spitting distance of Bernie. And he was expected to win South Carolina. Let's yeah, be clear. To your point, for there was sure. a lot it of wasn't, groundwork done there. It wasn't a there. surprise or an upset. It was a good state for him. But South Carolina, in fairness to Biden, for... George Bush in 2000, for Obama in 08, it has been a firewall for other candidates. Pete Buttigieg, do you think he'll back Joe Biden here? No, I mean, I think that he has a much more moderate view of the country than Bernie Sanders does, um, but it partly depends on what's realistic or not. It may be that after tomorrow night, other candidates, whether it's Biden or Bloomberg, are still within striking distance of Bernie, or it may be that that's just something that, you know, media and pundits like me like to talk about because it's fun. <laughs> But their math is the math, in which case they boot a judge won't. I will say, uh, as always, his timing was good and he handled things well. Um, by kind of overperforming in the first few primaries and then getting out when he did, he looks really good. 
and he kind of overperformed, even though he didn't win the election itself. What does this mean for Mike Bloomberg? Because the analysis instantly turned to the idea of the the centrists then splitting yeah. the vote, and, and Mike Bloomberg suddenly becoming a problem. Yeah, well, let's see how tomorrow goes. There's a world where Mike does much better than Biden in California, does really well in Texas, North Carolina, other states, and is the best person to take on Bernie. Or there's a world where that's Biden and Mike will have to make a hard decision. Um, but having worked with and for Mike for the last 20 years in one form or another, um, I know for a fact that he's going to put what's best for the country ahead of anything else. That's what makes him different than every other politician, and that's why he's not really a politician. Yeah, it feels like a low-probability world at this stage. Yeah, I mean, who knows? The, the one thing I know about politics is nobody knows anything, right? So you and I can sit here and sound <laughs> yeah. smart, and at the end of the day, everyone's making it all up. So that, that's the one thing I'm certain. But of. your point, though, I think was important, which was Mike has always wanted to be president. I don't think there's any secret to that. Yeah, sure. Whoever's known and spoken to him knows that. But at the same time, this was about perhaps the belief is that it was about being concerned that Joe Biden couldn't. Right. If, win if it this. turns out that Biden truly has rebounded, then I think Mike would say that's not a bad thing. Mike got in the race because at least at the time Biden's campaign was imploding. Sanders and Warren were both surging. And Mike's clear view was that it would be very hard for Sanders or Warren to be Trump in the general election. But um, if Biden turns out is viable, I think Mike would still think he'd be a better president and a better candidate. But certainly Biden is better than Sanders or Warren. Can anyone beat Trump here? Um, a lot of it depends on the coronavirus, right? So uh, there are a lot of voters who say, I don't like the way he behaves, but the economy is pretty good. We're not at war and therefore keep things going. And keep in mind, no incumbent president in history presiding over a good economy and not been in a ground war I has know. ever lost. I know. Because the idea yeah. is that things are okay, there's no reason to change, change you know, captains on the ship. But if the economy is really plunging because of coronavirus, then all of a sudden a lot of voters might say, I don't like him and the economy is now failing. And then it depends on the alternative, right? If the alternative is Bloomberg or Biden, yeah, I think they can definitely win. If it's Sanders, it still may not be enough. See, that's an interesting point. Do you think Mike has regrets? He came under fierce criticism after that, that first debate that he was sort of lost and he was being... Yeah beaten up by Elizabeth Warren, and there were many ways that he could have tackled her and her yeah, background and history and, absolutely. and look, didn't. Look, so as the person who prepared him uh, for both debates, and I take responsibility for the fact that the first one didn't go as well as it should, uh, you know, a few things. One is Mike's just not a politician, so it doesn't come naturally him to go after people and attack or to be talking about health care and then pivot to the NRA or something like that. That's just not how yes. his mind works. Second is, no matter how much you prepare, there's nothing in the world like a presidential debate, and it moves at an incredible speed, and until you do a couple and get them under your belt, it's very hard to be good at it. And look, Mike's skill is not debating, talking, campaigning. His skill is running things, whether it's Bloomberg LP or the city of New York. Warren is an amazing debater. That is her greatest skill. She's never really run much of anything, neither has Bernie. Um, so it really depends on ultimately what the voters want. If they want someone who can get things done, Mike's still a great choice for them. But if they want someone who exceeds at politics, then, you know, someone like Warren's very good. Reality TV. We focus yes. perhaps too much in the United States on the reality TV aspect well, look, look of running a country yeah. versus um, perhaps leadership yeah, it's, credentials. I mean, it's, it's funny. In the couple weeks I spent with Mike preparing for the debates, he, I assume, spent more time talking about what it would be like to run the federal government, deal with the bureaucracy, personnel, budget, the actual operations of a four million person business than probably all the other candidates combined. But I think one of the big criticisms, and it's a fair one, and you can perhaps address this better than anybody, is that none of the questions there seemed out of 
what we were expecting. They were yeah. all pretty obvious, no, I, particularly I the ones were. like non-disclosure agreements. Right. And it was like, why weren't you prepared you to... Know, he, he was, in the sense that he knew what to say, but the truth is, um, running a Democratic primary, you have certain vulnerabilities if you're Mike Bloomberg, and if all the candidates are going to spend the first hour attacking yeah. you, you're just going to look pretty bad and no matter what you do. Other. Yeah, and I think in the second debate where he had his legs under him a little more, he performed much better. So, you know, it's not that he wasn't prepared for these issues. It's that if, if you're under attack for an hour, the narrative is so-and-so got beat up in the debate and now is in invariable. And look, he's not a traditional Democrat. Um, he's not traditional anything. He's Mike Bloomberg. If the country wants the best possible person to run the nation, he's your choice. But if you care about traditional politics, then he's probably not. Yeah, his way or the highway, perhaps. Yes, sometimes. <laughs> Will you make yeah. a decision this week, very quickly? Um, don't know. I think it really depends on what happens tomorrow. But then uh, keep in mind, on March 10th, it's a whole other slate of really big states, which he has invested a lot of money in, both field operations, digital, and been on the air. And so the data may show that he has a good chance in those states, in which case he might stay in. Um, look, he has the freedom to do what he wants because he doesn't have to rely on else's his money, but he also has the integrity to do what's right for the country. And so I think whatever the best thing is for the country itself is what he'll do. Great to have you with us. Thanks Thank you me. so much. Sure. Bradley Tusk there. All right. After the break, two CEOs are out the door and a third might be headed that way if recent reports are to be believed. The latest twist with the bearded one is Twitter. Next. To first move with a look at today's boardroom brief. Motorbike maker Harley Davidson looking for a new boss. CEO Matt Levitich is stepping down after the company said its US sales fell last year for the fifth year running. Harley's seen its customer base growing steadily older and struggling to win younger customers. Nokia CEO Rajiv Suri is seen here on the right to step down after six years at the helm of the telecom equipment company. The Finnish firm has struggled to compete against Sweden's Ericsson and China's Huawei in the race to deliver 5G networks. Suri will stay on as advisor until next year. From a CEO that's out to one that might be forced out, Twitter's stock soaring after hedge fund Elliott Management has bought a stake and one source says they want CEO Jack Dorsey replaced. Take a look at what we're seeing for Twitter's stock at this moment. Wowzers, higher by almost 8%. Paul and Monica, are the shareholders telling us something here, Paul? Yeah, I think what's interesting, Julia, is that, you know, Twitter, to be fair, has had a pretty good run as of late. I think that investors are uh, pleased with some of the initiatives that Dorsey has taken, you know, the uh, move to not have political advertising, for example, you know, to try and make the platform a little less toxic than it has been. But that being said, Twitter suffers from a somewhat unique problem in that Jack Dorsey is not just the CEO of Twitter. He is also the CEO of the very well-performing uh, payments technology company Square. And there has been tension there where people wonder, can Dorsey effectively run two companies at the same time when he's also off in Africa for a you know, large stretch of the year. He's, you know, trotting around the globe doing a lot of different things. He's he's similar to Elon Musk in some respects that he's juggling a lot of balls in the air and eventually some of them drop. Yeah, and also uh, switching his phone off for several days on a meditation retreat over his birthday. It's like you're either a CEO or you're not. It's tough. Um, perhaps some of the bounce that we're seeing today, though, is about the broader market rally, a bit of a bounce back after the worst week since the financial crisis last week. Global stimulus hopes, I think, feeding in here, Paul. 
Yeah, I think that one of the things that I'd be a little worried about here is that, yes, we are seeing stocks rebound because now I think, you know, everyone expects the Fed uh, at their next meeting in a few weeks will cut rates and possibly buy a half point to, uh, you know, address the coronavirus fears. But as many people have written, and I did in a a column on uh, Friday, rate cuts aren't necessarily the solution for a biological problem that is plaguing the world right now and has a lot of people worried and shutting down factories and, you know, putting in travel restrictions. So central bankers should obviously do what they can to try and restore confidence, but I'm not so sure how well these plans will work. I'm firmly with you, Paul, but it's just the symbol it sends, I think, perhaps more than anything. Final question, Jack Welch, Welch, titan that he is, and of course we heard that we lost him today. Yeah, the news that he uh, passed away, he was uh, one of the you know, top CEOs of the 20th century. Clearly, he did a great job of building GE into the conglomerate that it eventually became. Of course, to be fair, some would lay some of the blame for GE's eventual bloated structure at Welch's feet as well. And, you know, we're now seeing Larry Culp trying to unwind a lot that Welch and other CEOs at GE did to build that up. But to Welch's credit, the mantra GE when he was running it was that you needed to either be in first or second. You need to be a market leader or we're going to get out of the business. And at the time, they were a market leader in just about everything that they were in. Yeah. The legend that was Jack Welch. Paula Monica, thank you so much for uh, joining us. That's it for the show. We have a market rally right now. We'll be back in a couple of hours' time with The Express. But for now, you've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.